My name is Furman DeRayander. I teach at Maryland City College of Art. And uh, my is pleased to partner with the Proud of High to bring this event tonight and have a discussion entitled Visions of the Future. And we are honored to host three multidisciplinary artists and our own esteemed moderator from Micah, Sherry Parks, who will take up several themes. Uh, so you've been pertinent to the lives of women in the arts um, today in the year of the woman, 100 years after the suffragist movement. What are the unique and perhaps continuing challenges for women working in the arts? How has it changed and perhaps improved over time? What does their same perspective or experience lend to their artwork? What lessons do they have to impart all this insight and outside of our world? So without further ado, I'm going to pass the link to my colleague from the Pratt Library, Jason Dunn. Thank you. Multidisciplinary artists with a practice that centers around 
creating various narratives and landscapes that reflect nature thriving in a utopian post-human planet, or what she terms as optimistic post-apocalypse. And she received her MFA from the Mount Royal School of Art at MICA and her BFA in painting from Boston University. She's exhibited her work at various places like the BMA, the Smithsonian Arts and Industry Museum, and Spring Break Art Show in New York City. And rounding out the panel, we have Kate Reed Petty, whose first novel, True Story, is coming out in August from Viking Books. Her fiction and essays have been published online by Electric Literature, American Short Fiction, the Los Angeles Review of Books, and she was awarded a 30 Below Prize by Narrative Magazine. Her work has been supported by the Sinawani Writers Conference, the Mount, and the Ruiz Artists Conference. And so after the conversation, we'll have a Q&A with all of you. So start thinking. And we just ask for you to wait for the microphone because we are podcasting in the evening. So people listening in at a later date can hear your thoughtful questions. So without further ado, please give a warm welcome to Valeria, Kate, Vaughn, and Sherry. Um, so that way, you know, to maybe like 
you know, put it in perspective for all of us to kind of realize, like, well, if we don't do something about this, then we could just not be here. And are you okay with that? Or are you not okay with that? Um, but that's, I guess, like the short, short, short version of it. Um, well, I, they haven't seen all the images, so we're going to get that going. Like just so those kinds of conflicts. 
Um, and this is just like, you know, to prove that I'm a legitimate operation, you have to have emotional material, say, like flyers and business cards, because every real estate, real real estate operation has that. Um, and ENDO, um, which is the acronym for the Eternal Navigators of Doom organization, um, was a result of like a previous performance I did at the BMA, um, where I was like, you know, challenged by Chris Bedford to like, can you please do a performance where you're opening? I'm like, I guess. And then created this like fake organization that's kind of like part cult, part organization, um, and was actually titled ENDO because or named Endo, not because I wanted to be the eternal navigators of doom, but I really, I had like this root canal that I needed to get, and it was gonna cost me $2,000, and I didn't have dental insurance. And I was like, wouldn't it be funny if I just tried to like secretly fundraise by becoming an organization to pay for my root canal? And um, so, and Endo, since it stood, is like that, like short for endodontist, I was like, oh, maybe I can make something out of this acronym here. Um, so that's like the short, short story of like why my real estate agency is called, or like the Eternal Navigators of Doom. But we do help people, you know, navigate post-apocalypse if you survive, or NPS money, membership fees, all that stuff. Um, and yeah, or buy, buy real estate. Um, and then this is an example of like, just like regular like, paintings that I have done, just like, Kind of represent, like, I don't know how to like really, which is horrible as like professionally, but I don't know how to describe this. <laughs> but, you know, just like, I guess, just saying like this piece in particular, um, I was a graduate of Margaret Stoneman Douglas High School, which had like the February 14th shooting, and I graduated like in two, 2000, so many years ago. Um, and, but still was deeply affected by it just because I still, my parents still live there and, um, and I was kind of like, I hate to say it, like not surprised that we had a school shooting because like being in that environment um, and growing up there, it's just like you do have like, you know, separate groups that I can see where like someone could be very isolated and like, you know, not friendly and it's also located in a majority very affluent neighborhood where there's like football players that live there and and so but I still felt very empathetic and, and just wanted to pay homage to them and luckily and the show was in Arlington Arts Center and I just thought it was very fitting like site specifically because of the relationship of how close it was to like you know DC and everything so this is kind of like to think about like I didn't want to be too obvious, or like like Liam Gala, or like you know, just like like talking about death. Um, like to symbolize death through like trees, like mutilated trees or abstracted trees, and then this one is kind of like seeing like you know like the witnessing of like violent events, and then just like the witnessing and like the post traumatic disorder, like all that the PTSD from it, just like so like call it like the hugging trees and. Stuff. And, but I also like to work extremely large, if you haven't already noticed. Um, and then that's my book, not my book. Um, like for instance, the one here on the left. Um, so just because I really like that immersive experience and just kind of thinking cinematically with movies, and when you go, it's just like the 
with a large screen in it, you're like immediately in another environment. So really like using scale to my advantage and, and thinking of that through through language painting. And so I hope that was Yeah, that's great. Thank you. Very much. <laughs> Thank you so yes. much. It's okay to use next. Thank you. Um, so just push this. Yeah. Yeah, got it. Okay, cool. Um, thank you all for being here. Thank you all for being on this panel. Um, my name is Kate Reed Kennedy, and my work is about, I write stories that are about storytelling. I think a lot about the politics of storytelling, about what it means to tell a story. Um, so I think of it as a, um, you know, stories about stories. Uh, it's sort of a playful approach to uh, something I think that is a very serious political, political issue in our world. Um, so this is my first novel I'll sort of introduce as a way to kind of say what I mean by that. Um, the book opens with a rumor about a sexual assault at a suburban high school in the late 90s that radiates through the lives of uh, characters for the next 15 years. And what the book is doing is thinking about how does the story itself shape who is allowed to speak, who is getting to tell the story, who is getting to um, kind of control the narrative about what happens. Um, because I think what I'm really interested in is how, you know, I think of stories as like a kind of technology that influences every part of our lives. It's in our laws and our schools and our religion and our relationships with each other and it's part of our biases and so what I like to do with when I'm writing is thinking about how does um, you know how how does how are each of us kind of living and telling ourselves stories about our own lives that are um, you know to justify our own actions and our own motivations to explain what other people are doing and then how are those stories kind of shaped by the stories that society has told us that we're allowed to tell or that we're supposed to tell or a movie that we love that we want to be cool like that movie or a play that we read one time so. I guess what I'm, what I'm sort of doing, but at the same time, I also want to be telling a story that is um, like a book that you really want to read. Like, I want you to be lost in the story at the same time. So I kind of think about it as um, like I want to put on a really good puppet show where you can see the strings on the marionette and but still kind of enjoy the story at the same time. Um, so this is so this is out in August. Um, this is not public yet, but next year I have a book. This is a YA novel called The Leak that is similarly about storytelling. Um, it is kind of Harriet the Spy meets Aaron Brockovich. It's about a teenage journalist who uncovers a um, pollution in the hometown water supply. And so at the same time, you know, this is uh, sort of an eclectic kind of switch from true story, but at the same time is still about, you know, it's, it's Ruth is this main character here. She's thinking about how do I tell a story as a 13-year-old girl that people will listen to, and how do I... Um, Make how do I tell the truth and do it in a responsible way and you know be a journalist and follow the rules of journalism. So this is the leak. Um, it's drawn by uh, an illustrator named Andrea Bell who's amazing, uh, and it'll be public soon. But this is just a sneak peek from that. And the final example I wanted to share is um, this is a, a short story published that I felt like is the most apocalyptic of my recently published work. Um, and the thing that I was thinking about with this piece, and, and again, coming back to stories, I'm really interested in apocalyptic narratives right now because we have so many pop culture apocalypse narratives, and I think we're going through a lot of things in the world now that we're looking at 
through that lens of those existing stories in a way that I don't think previous generations did. I don't know that our, I won't rank our crises versus what has happened in the past. I think humankind is always facing real crises, but I think that the way that we're processing them is, is through the lens of movies and books and stories in a way that it hasn't been before. So this is a short story. You can read it, I would be flattered, mm -hmm. about how people respond when there's an earthquake every day. Um, it's on electric literature. And okay. that's it. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> 
places to connect people, to collaborate. Um, so this year, actually, instead of putting on a bunch of events that we used to, um, I hope to see more on the online platform. So I'm actually just going to create um, bootsrises.org. It's going to have based on online resources of all the artists, musicians, and um, networks that we created. So you can actually hire musicians that we worked with. You can see the bands we worked with. Kind of like a, a, a inventory, I guess, of all the venues and places in Baltimore. I want to create that collaboration, that network, and basically like catalyze that, you know? Um, and then this is actually a picture of me, I think, at Micah. Um, so when I went to Micah, I went there for undergrad and graduate school, undergrad in architecture and uh, graduate school for social design. Um, I think I remember just my time at Micah was, um, I was always kind of going against the brain, to be honest. Micah um, was really awesome, but then also at times I felt like um, I was like this artist, designer, not trying to, like that line between being an artist and designer and also just like working in a community was always blurred. Um, I don't know if you guys feel this way, but sometimes you see projects out there and you, know, you just feel like they're either not sustainable or they're just not um, connecting right. And I never wanted to be that way, but then you think about it too much and they just, it doesn't happen, right? Um, so that questioning, that constant basically, um, working towards something bigger is why Roots and Rices existed. It's because, actually, um, I, at Micah, didn't feel like as an architecture student, um, we had space to showcase our art. Because the designers weren't really seen as artists, you know, and, and, and at least in the curatorial space, you know. Um, so our art was limited to these small corners, you know what I mean? And then also in addition to that, I felt like um, there was this lack of representation of Latina um, involved in Maida. And so I said, you know what, I'm going to do a festival. And so I actually created, instead of doing an architecture thesis, traditional one, I did a fashion line called Sigma Kid. Um, essentially took in immigrant stories of Latinos um, and, and translated their stories into clothing. And I had a fashion show slash art festival um, and that's kind of the beginning of everything. Um, and now I have a beautiful network of people um, in my community. Um, and like I said before, we're really working towards catalyzing, connecting, collaborating. Thank you. So we're, I'm going to ask questions, and I, I hope in a few minutes you'll start asking each other questions. This is a conversation. But I'll, I'll start it off, and then after a while, it'll be Q&A. Um, we have time for every person to have it. <laughs> <laughs> I, have fun. I have to ask you, so did it work? Did you get your root canal? I did. Okay. Um, but I, I lost money on the fundraiser, I think. And, but I did take photos at, of myself getting the root canal. Like I asked my endodontist if I could do it, and I dressed up in my my costume that I did in performance and stuff. And my partner like really nicely like was like taking video for me. But I, I don't, haven't done anything with that footage, but I felt like, well, maybe I can really write this off my taxes. That's pretty surprising. So I did that. And I hope this podcast doesn't have someone from the IRS. <laughs> 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 
It sounds real. Okay, great, great. There's documentation, so I can prove it. And I actually, I did want to ask you the first question because, I mean, you know, this is a panel of women, and I think your work has a lot to say about. Or let me ask it this way: What does your work say about the feminine capital F? I guess, like mostly, I see the earth as feminine. Like, it's like the earth is just being to me more of a woman, you know. Like, or I see it as a female body, and um, and a lot of my work, like in kind of like partially like creating these narratives, is like imagining like the earth, um, especially through. Like either wars or just any type of like environmental devastation, it's just like just like this, you know, violence. And so why I think of it or Earth as a like in this optimistic post-apocalypse is just like Earth was like this scorned woman in a country music song or something like that. Like, you know, I'm no more. I'm going to be a changed woman. No one's going to hurt me anymore. And so. Trying then to think of these like post-apocalyptic, but very sublime, beautiful environments, um, but very uninhabitable, and it's just all just for her, and not like, not allowing anyone else to come back, you know, from like Star Trek search party or something like that. You messed it up. You can't come back. No, yeah, sorry. <laughs> and of course, sir, it's not. It's not. Mm -hmm. Of course. I mean, it gives. It gives us so much. Or like she gives us so much. And I feel like as women, we we always end up giving so much, you know. And, and I feel like that's how the earth should also be treated. Yeah. And you know, feel free if you want to jump in and ask. <laughs> but, but I, I mean, your work, uh, part of your work is giving more visibility to to particularly Latinx women. And can you tell us a story about either the the lack of visibility or the increased visibility? Um, in your work, and how it is meant to, to I mean, not to people, not just to women. Um, I think it's been really important um, for two reasons. Um, I'm also pretty young. I think that was always something that came up was uh, I was challenged a lot by my age um, when I was like 19, 18, running platforms and stuff. I used to run a, a, a restaurant when I was 19. <laughs>
Like even in like the immigrant activist spaces, like uh, a lot of people talk about Cesar Chavez, but rarely talk about Dolores Huerta, who's the one that created the Si Se Puede, you know? And, and I think that access to representation for women is to be in levels of leadership in the city, um, specifically um, immigrant and Latinx, has been missing. Um, and I want to create the, the space for people to feel like they can, you know, they can do it. So the, there is some invisibility, and I wanted to ask you this because we just had the Super Bowl um, with Lieutenant Lopez and Takeda. Does that visibility matter or not in, in day-to-day life of you and the women you work with? I feel like with that, I mean, I think that's important, yes. I mean, that's, that's pretty awesome. We made it to like one of the <laughs> least Latino event possible. <laughs> I, I, I honestly, I, I'm sure they're probably watching a soccer championship <laughs> or football. Um, I did not grow up on football, so. Um, but I think, I think it is important in the sense that like they have made it, you know, they did making it. I think it's something that we should also talk about. What does that mean? Um, did Shakira make it? But also Shakira and Jill had a lot of access that a lot of people, especially in Baltimore, do not have access to. Like they had the connections and networks with people that basically, you know, being um, shaped into who they, they are now. Um, and I think about also how they give back. Um, Shakira is a little controversial actually um, because um, some folks in, in my network have actually told me she doesn't give it back to Colombia, but in the same way that other Colombian artists have. Like she, I'm not sure it has changed, but she had not um, agreed to do like this, um, I guess like show concert students in Colombia to raise funding um, for, for the local communities. Um, that Juan is, and like, all the other Colombian artists have agreed to, and she just didn't want to unless she's paid big money. Um, so I think like, it, I do also like, you know, you are should be yes. But then like, is there a certain level where it's like, are you giving back in the same way? Um, and I think the visibility they gain is super important, but also kind of where how they're using that visibility, you know? Like why did Kaepernick, you know, do that, the neat thing, right? Like now that's created, that challenged his career. And like, are people willing to give off that career? This is interesting because it connects to what I wanted to ask Kate. Um, I, I got to read your short story oh, in, in its entirety. Um, and I read some other things online. You should go on her website. There's lots of very funny things, uh, particularly about email. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and you know, you really are, as you are in your new book and your other work, doing language about language. I mean, uh, and, and many of your protagonists are women, and their language is very nuanced. And I wonder, I mean, if their gender is part of their positioning in your, in your work or not. Yeah, no, I, I, that's a, I think so. Um, I think that, I mean, you, like, you, when you sort of hear writers talk about characters, there's like all these apocryphal stories about like, do you know what your character had for breakfast that day? And do you know like when they skinned their knee when they were five years old? And like, do you know everything about them? So I think that, um, as much as I do take that seriously, and I think that uh, you know, a gender and race and biography and socioeconomic status, like all of the sort of like 
big factors in a person's life matter in their decisions, and also, you know, what they had for breakfast matters, how they feel that day, how, like, how much energy they have, um, eat a good breakfast. But um, I think that what's more important about when I'm writing a woman character, for example, is that the way that they're, like, dis like I, I hope that I can find a way to show the way that their decisions are shaped by the society around them. I feel like our storytelling that we've always, like, in, especially in the West and in America, we're so focused on the individual and the power mm -hmm. of what an individual can do, um, which I think going to, I mean, both, both of you all touched on this, like, it's sort of patriarchal and sort of, like, weirdly American masculine to be like, it's all about me and the hero's mm -hmm. journey is just, like, one person, you know, venturing out into the unknown. And I think that's um, a little bit toxic. Uh, and I, I feel like I've gotten a little bit away from your question. You mean because the dragon might kill you? Is that what you mean? If you venture out on your quest? I feel like it's toxic because it makes you, it makes you like if you like if you think about a, like if you read a story like Star Wars and then you start to think about the world as I'm an individual mm -hmm. against the forces of evil, you can kind of justify anything that you do. Mm -hmm. And I think um, there's, a, there's a writer based in DC named Malka Older who um, wrote this piece about narrative disorder, about how we all have this concept of ourselves as the hero of our own stories. Um, and she talks about, like, she talks about it in her own life as like a, a, like a psychological disorder that she tries to get over. Because um, it's true, like we're all part of society and our lives are much more shaped by the people around us and our governments and our laws and all these other things, even though we like to pretend that it's just like us against the world. Um, so, well, and, and, yeah. and that's interesting that you pull that into the discussion of the feminine because that, that myth usually is overtly about masculinity going out into the world and vanquishing evil and then coming back. Um, there, some of you are of the age to remember he-Man? Yeah, sure. He-Man, for all the bad animation, actually had an on-site psychologist. Um, so notice that He-Man never vanquishes evil. Skeletor goes back and comes back. And parents wrote and said, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah, my son has to know that he can vanquish evil. Um, you know, although, you know, I wish we could. Yeah, but, yeah. And, and so now you've, you've just done a flip about not, and this actually goes into another question I wanted to ask because you know women have always been told what they're supposed to be. You know, in the 1950s they were supposed to be, and I'm using this you know in quotes with my good women's studies education, and and to be feminine, and then first wave feminists were supposed to be more masculine. And with the work recently of gender queer people, the binaries are starting to break down, and I wonder in the apocalyptic world, <laughs> the optimistic, I love that optimistic apocalyptic, um, whether gender matters anymore. I, sh I feel like I should step back and say, discuss. Um, it's not to anybody, but to everybody. What is the role of gender now? I mean, it's a tough question. <laughs> you know, I, it's, for me, I mean, still, it, it's what you want to identify as. I feel like it's totally acceptable, and I feel like in the future, it's just more like thinking of like the different waves of feminism. It's just like not forgetting that these things have happened and have existed, and they have like fought and done a lot for us, and we're still fighting. Um, but I guess it's just like as like the next generations come through, 
we get older, like have to understand like what's coming in from the new, and then but also like like reminding them about history and about that it's not I guess like this continuation like he man like still continuing battling evil in a way you know, but as I guess whatever you want to identify with. Skeletor, Skeletor will always exist. Yeah. Well, because when we were first emailing um, before, and I had a list of questions, and I did have a question overtly about. I mean, I had seen some frames where where all the people looked like and, and presented mm -hmm. as as women. And I asked you about that, and you said, and you know, "Tell me what you said," because I think that's really important about the post-human and and the and the roles. Mm -hmm. I guess it's this like, is our, our meta conversation. The <laughs> right? I do. Yeah. Um, I guess for me, it's just like no one exists. Like you know, like no one doesn't matter who you are, and it's just. Um, and I feel like nature doesn't discriminate. You know, we create environments that make nature discriminate, and I, and I kind of want it not to, like, not recognize history and like what has happened throughout time, but just. Many Latinx communities are still very gendered. Oh yeah, definitely. I think, and on that question, I feel like, I mean, I'm originally from Bolivia, and I think, um, yes, I moved here when I was four, but the mindset, I think, in the, in the, in the culture in which I grew up, was very much um, gendered. I think, you know, like, when I did go back to Bolivia, I went there for one year um, we like the girls were separated from the boys, and the girls had to learn how to cook, and learn how to sew, and do all these things, and then the boys had to learn how to do woodcrafting, and this and that, and, and like, we got to like sit together for like math and science, everything else was separated, and I think, um, not all schools are like that, definitely, um, but it was a very Catholic school. <laughs> um, but, I think the idea of gender, like even getting people that are in the Latino community, and I will say, like with the whole, when I call my first festival, Somos Latinx Art Culture Festival, Mouthful, um, the Latino community was like, what is Latinx? What is this S? Why are you adding an X to a perfectly good name? <laughs> and, and so I had to have a conversation about what X means, um, and, and, and do some of you recognize S and do say, that sign instead. <laughs> um, I, a lot of people really missed it. Really I, I, I know lots of people are accused within your community. The, the older population just is, does not understand, and they don't. They don't um, I think it's it's like it's ingrained, I, and I think I have it too. Like it's ingrained in my head and depth of my head, but I've been shaped by the living here and the artist community and going to my Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. So it's kind of how, how do you shape adults and 
changing their habits, you know? Like, even my family, I have certain family members that I know, like, they might have, like, preconceived ideas about gender, preconceived ideas about race. Um, but, you know, on the surface, who knows what they actually think? They're like, oh, yeah, everything's cool. <laughs> Yeah, no, definitely. I, I mean, I, I agree, and I, I feel like um, the only thing I would add is just that I'm so grateful for the activism. Like, to, like to me, feminism has always been about, or the, at its best, it's always been about freedom and um, fairness. And when it, you know, it, it, when it's fallen, when it has gone awry, it's when it's sort of lost those those values. Um, and I think with freedom, especially, I'm sort of exhilarated by. How much activism I'm seeing in terms of non-binary and genderqueer motion because it expands me, it expands my personal concept of like what's possible for myself. Um, I think like I talk to my parents a lot similarly about sort of um, just they'll come to me with questions about things that are going on and, and it's really slow progress but they're like it's I think it's at its best to be optimistic about it it's kind of cool to think about everybody opening their minds about the rules, the things that we all thought we had to be bound by, femininity or masculinity, or we had to be bound by certain things. And um, I'm just grateful to, to activists who are pushing those boundaries, because I think it's, it's more freedom for everybody. Yeah. So, so my last question, so get ready, um, <laughs> is uh, um, the BMA and, and other venues are trying to remediate the underrepresentation of women. So, you, you know that the Baltimore Museum of Art um, this year is only collecting works by women. And so, since this is in part about the future, um, given that that's happening at the BMA and other places, 20 years from now, what do you think the collections, and, I, and I'm really interested in what the, the author says about this, what do you think the collections will look like? Not just the, the bodies of women, but what do you think will be different? Because there are more women artists represented the work. What do you think will be on the walls that will be different? It's really a very uh, different way of saying what does gender matter. Right. Yeah. I guess optimistically, yes, I would love for there to be like equal representation for everybody. But do you think the art will be different? I don't think the art will be different. I, I guess like I just worry. I'm about tokenization, you know, where it's just like, here's like, you know, like say a Chinese woman artist, and this and like a black woman artist, woman artist, like- And there'll be sets. Yeah, there'll be sets, and then, then you're completely defined by who you're, like your race, even though you may not really, I guess, I wouldn't say care, but like, it's not really like the category of what, of what you're doing. I don't know, like, for instance, like, I'm, I, I don't make identity work, you know, and, 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 and but right now, identity work is in fashion. I hate to say, like, it's zeitgeist. And not that there's anything wrong with identity work, but it's just then you still feel like this categorization in a way. And um, and I don't know if this is off topic or not, but just like kind of like as an Asian American, um, we are still also kind of some like subcategorized in a different way, where it's like we do see a lot more. Like say for instance, like mainland Chinese artists or South Korean artists, and then us Asian American artists. Like we're here too, you know. But but at the same time, like we grew up in Western culture and like all this stuff. So it's just kind of like, oh, but so I guess with that aside, like, yeah, like, of course, like yes, ideally, yes, 
but to be super overrepresented, uh, represented, like, I hope, like, the gallery system also really does, like, a true representation of women in, like, in shows, and I feel like that's still a struggle. Um, but, like, I'm surprised that it's not more women to begin with, because when you go to art school, it's all women. It's, like, mostly women. Like, in your class, you don't have the they're bros, you know? <laughs> so it's like so surprising that once we all graduate, most of us as women artists, like there's, you go to the gallery, let's say in Chelsea, New York, or you go to the museum, it's like mostly men. Yeah. What do you think happens to them, to the women, students? I don't know. I mean, it could be like talking about gender roles, it could be talking about. Just who gets bought. Yeah, who gets bought, who, like, again, it could be just. People caring only about guys, or maybe, you know, I don't know. It's just, but it's it's hard. But I I feel confident that it'll just like even out. But it's interesting that you went to to race that people would have have collections in a sense, not collections in the way we think about art, but collections and like teacups. That yeah, yeah. Sure with this pattern and this yeah. pattern. Here's my environmental art. <laughs> you know, like it's just like. Uh, <laughs> Right. You, you perked up for a minute when I, when I asked this question. So, actually, it brings me a question for you. Oh, okay. Oh, That's not bad. When you talked about how women are boxed as artists, um, in a way, like, uh, through race, do you, do you feel like men are doing the, the same way? Like, are black men in future, like, Stephen Towns, do you feel like they're defined by their black, you know, like, being black identity, like, why they were featured in the museum, or, or do you think men in general have just like a wide spectrum of art and like you know, they can paint, you can pick portraits of women, like that's that's cool. They can also do like Dadaism or they can do surrealism, but women have to be the binary race. Or is it is it the same? Is it, is it a different standard for men? You know, it's interesting when I was writing the question, what I really didn't want to ask about was what is women's art. Mm -hmm. I was trying to, to get past that. But I, but I think that that often is, I mean, when you talk about the collections, the assumption that women will write only about certain experiences and certain things, which is why your art, which is wildly <laughs> different, is, is exciting. Um, I think, I mean, I don't know if you know Steve, a lot of people in the room may know Stephen Towns. I know Steve. <laughs> um, I mean, and he, he obliterates the gender because he does, he does a lot with quilting and sewing that he makes very clear that he learned from his mother. But yes, I mean, part of, and I, and, and, I, mean, I, I like him very much, he would say yes, some of his visibility is because he is a, a black man. Um, and often, um, black women's work is, and, and it's, I'm, I'm gonna, and I'm really curious about the way is that, um, are, are less easy to grab onto. Um, that they, they talk about a lot of different things and are very problematic. Mm -hmm. If you think about some of the, the black women who are being shown, they break out of their boxes, which makes them and maybe difficult to collect because you don't, you don't know if you have this, this one yet because you know, she's all the way over there. I, I will say, that's, that's actually what the answer when you, when you ask that question. Um, I don't want to predict what the future of women's art is, but I am sort of exhilarated about things that don't necessarily fit into the box. Mm -hmm. Like, if 
I don't know if only buying art by women is the mechanism that makes that happen, but whatever changes the art world and the publishing world is the same, to open the gatekeepers' minds so that they can accept those things that don't mm -hmm. fit into the visual. And I think, I think it's a question of like genre and style as well as the identity of the artist. Um, anything that gets people to sort of see different things, I find it like very exciting to see something truly new that comes out of a new voice or somebody bringing a different perspective. Um, I just saw the movie Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Did anybody see that? Yeah, one. Um, so you know, um, but it's it was just it's really good, and it was and it felt like a little bit of this in that it was a it was something made. I mean, maybe actually maybe Parasite is a more popular example of something that like I just feel like we're st we're starting to reap the benefits of gatekeepers opening their minds to new things, and it's um, and it's like like Parasite is an amazing movie, and it, and it doesn't fit into a genre, and I found it. Um, just delightful start to finish and could never have invented that. Um, so I hope that the future, made by a man, but I hope that the future of women's art is... Instead of it being, it losing because nobody could peg it, which often happens with mm. art, then it, it, he won everything, they won everything. Yeah. 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 Because, you know, to answer your question better, um, when I wrote Pierce Angels, they said, well, we don't know what to do with this because it's, you know, universal. Oh. And, and I learned to ask, well, what shelf do you think it's going to go on? And they said, oh, it's, it's going to go on the black literature shelf. Oh. And so, you know, it comes back to category. Thank you. I have a, so, what about you? Are you in the, are you standing in front of her artwork in that first yeah. frame? Yeah. That's what I thought. <laughs> first scale. <laughs> Okay, great. So, <laughs> questions? I feel like we should only take one question. Yeah, right there. We don't have to compete for it. Right there. You see him? He's right there. Oh. <laughs> Get in that photo. Yes. Yes. Okay. <laughs> um, what are some, so going back to the apocalypse piece um, and how we've sort of mentioned seeing that reflected in art and literature and movies, are there any um, uh, pieces, creative pieces uh, in any medium with that theme that have inspired, intrigued, uh, upset, uh, any, any kind of reaction from uh, any one of uh, our panelists lately? And what about you? Um, right. Sure. So uh, I uh, read fiction compulsively, so I'm just thinking about uh, the apocalypse narratives, uh, lately Severance from Lingma, um, The Envy Star from Station Eleven, uh, Oryx and Craig, less recent. Um, and also, you know, works with Afrofuturism, right? Envisioning sort of a post-apocalypse that is also inclusive. Uh, but but that, that's my medium, you know. So I'm just curious of what, what I'm missing, perhaps. I'll, I'll add just one to that, because uh, uh, my recommendations are all books also. Um, there's a writer in Richmond named Lindsay Lerman who just wrote a book called I'm From Nowhere. It's from a small publisher called Clash. Um, and it's a really interesting, like, it's, it, the thing I like about it is that it is apocalyptic, but the apocalypse is in the background, and it's a, it's a character leaving her husband, or her husband has just died, and she's sort of 
figuring out how do you live as a woman when, you've, when you no longer have sort of like a man to define you or control your property or, or do those, those old things. Um, but it's great, but I like, what I like about it is that the apocalypse is in the background. People are still like going to panel conversations and as, as things are breaking down. It feels very real, so I recommend that one. That'll be um, next year. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I read a lot of nonfiction. I do a lot of research on the reading and um, just like reading a lot of just articles related to like climate change and um, and all that stuff, which is does get very, very, very depressing. <laughs> and trying to not feel overly well, that's gotten a little bad. Just like you know, like. What, how can I just put it, like just understand all these ideas and theories and then also put that into my work. And then um, have been trying to like read reference and stuff like that. It's on my, my bookshelf of like things to read. You know, we're all quarantined, all everything gets to it. Um, but I mostly, like, besides like nonfiction, um, like a lot of, and philosophy and everything, but um, I really, really love like really cool blockbuster action movies, like really growing movies, which is like just anti like feminist, but you know, <laughs> I, I, I don't know, I just something about how absurd it is. Could I just feel like I want to make something absurd? Why can't I do that? I think <laughs> And, and actually related to that, there's a book, and I think it's, I know it's the moviegoer's guide to either the apocalypse or the end of the world, and it makes the argument that we've been practicing for, for the apocalypse for a while, and I think I see that now, <laughs> that, you know, we're so afraid in part because we feel like we've gone through this narrative over and over and over again, rather than, you know, the, the real threat. You know, that's funny. I, mean, I used to read a lot of apocalyptic books as a kid. Like, I would go to sleep reading horror books. I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and I used to read, like, uh, those kind of dystopian society books. Like, I love those. And, and now I find myself reading nonfiction now. I think I, I read books about the apocalyptic cities, like, that we have now. Like, in a way, in a weird sense. Um, and I say this as an architecture or architecture student. <laughs> I actually recommend um, Radical Cities Across Latin America. That's one of my favorite books just to, to look at. Um, I met the author at Adams. Um, and the book kind of navigates across different cities in, in um, Latin America that essentially do um, things that Western societies like America would considered radical, but it's, it's kind of ironic because these things have existed in indigenous cultures and societies for years, and like thousands of years. And I think the idea of new, innovative, creative you know, concepts are taking from like indigenous cultures, like even this practice of like sacred healing and like you know like ayahuasca and like, all, like healing communities in, in the U.S. Um, there's like an eeriness to it. I, I feel like, you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I feel like there's like uh, appropriation happening, especially in indigenous societies. And um, that's the dystopian future that I see where, where kind of like, we're not conscious of what innovative is anymore. Um, and there's, there's a way that you can take 
their like take inspiration versus take their ideas. And that's something that I'm constantly trying to battle myself. Like how do I not feel tokenized, you know, with my work? Like I don't want to be like she's the Latina of the city, you know, like this is the one you call. <laughs> like uh, we are the future. Like when I look at the future of us and like all the images, like our future is globalized. Like that that's a utopian society, right? An ideal society where all of us are so ambitious, you gotta go from where they're from. <laughs> Like that's the future we're working towards. And um, I didn't say much about this yet, but I'm actually starting a wearable tech company called Suyana um, with Ava Pip. And uh, she runs Post Homes. Um, and she is also a transgender woman. And I think like we are such an odd group of people. Like, <laughs> like we, we are like the future, I think, of, of what um, Baltimore needs. And all of us, I think, just being on the stage and, and having this platform is super important for this utopian society we want to create, rather than an apocalyptic future. Um, I think I went all out. That was great. Is, is, is there another question? Yes. Probably not very sanitary to use the same mic again. You know, coronavirus. Don't <laughs> <laughs> you want her to hold it? Yeah, it's okay. Um, can, you now. can you talk about kind of like career dreams? If if you had unlimited resources and could make all sorts of big stuff happen for yourself and for Baltimore. What would you do? Do I start? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I've got the worst answer to this question, which I'm, I'm an introvert and I, I'm a writer, and all that I want is just all the time to write alone in my room. So and, you're living your dream. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've already got it, I guess. Um, I don't know, I, 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 um, I have such big dreams for, for Baltimore, and I love and I admire the people who are doing activism and organizing and starting starting big things for this city, which we need. Um, but I'm I just I'm not the person to do it. So my dream is just to keep writing books that hopefully can inspire others. Yeah. yeah. Um, I guess I don't know. I I would have so many projects going. I would just be so excited. If I had Beyonce winning, I would just be like making my own homecomings and like you know like all like twenty thousand of them and. Um, but also, like, and I thought about this, like, I, I do want to be very philanthropic, you know, like, if I did come across, like, if I was able to make, like, $50,000 on one painting or something like that, if I don't feel comfortable just, like, hoarding that, like, I really do feel like I would like to throw that money back into the community and, and have made it a point to, like, when I have been commissioned for my projects to do, like, at least some type of percentage back in the community. Just, because, not because like I want to feel good about myself or anything, but it's just like I, it's just something I truly believe in. And um, and if there was more money coming in, of course there would be more money coming out. And also, you know, more money coming in is meaning um, that I can also provide someone a job, you know, because I want to be able to pay someone to help me in my studio. I want to be able to not have free interns or anything. So I feel like that is a bit of like a trickle down, but. 
really intentionally like, no, I'm going to support people, and like, this is how it's going to happen, and it's going to be awesome, and they're going to help me make my home with me. <laughs> I, I want to put my money towards Bond's homecoming. Yes, I want to please, please, please. There you go. It <laughs> <laughs> sounds like another Kickstarter. Yes, yes. <laughs> I mean, yeah, along the same vein, I think yes, giving back. Um, and I, I'm, I'm also like conscious that um, I stretch myself out to this sometimes. I do too many projects, and I something I'm trying to do now is focus and then focus on one thing and make it great. <laughs> And um, I think something that lacks, and, and especially in Baltimore, is recognition um, for people and their hard work to do stuff that the government doesn't do. Um, like, I think about all the people, like, and I work in the school system, like, there's no AC, no heating, there's no water, like, there's these, all these problems. And I think there's all these local heroes in the community that are not recognized, are not, are not given like, um, proper, I guess, awards. <laughs> and actually, last year, I had a gala. I had a gala in Creative Alliance, very expensive. <laughs> but I honored all the individuals in the community that I felt like were not recognized, that were doing so much hard work in the community. I've never been to a gala. Like, I was like, I literally mostly did the gala for all the people that have never been to a gala. <laughs> and I think these things are important. I think the, the feeling of dressing up and going on a red carpet, taking pictures in front of a step and repeat, and like, you know, feeling like someone is your paparazzi, like, <laughs> like, I think all these local heroes, all the people, they're, they are part of my mission and my work, and I'm really excited, and I, I want to support them too. Is that what you're doing Absolutely. We can all make a giant outcome. I think it would be amazing, you know. Started a movement. Yes. We don't have to call it a movement. You always call it But <laughs> we need to call it She didn't start that. <laughs> Any more? One more, okay. Uh, so to talk in a different way about community support and what that looks like for the arts and creativity, um, what do you see as the future like healthcare access for people in the arts? Mm. Or do you see a future there? I didn't mean to create a downer. <laughs> No, I mean, I mean, it's what's more, like it's so important. Um, I mean, I, I, I want Medicaid for all. Like, I want, like, I want the country to actually do the right thing and provide healthcare um, for everybody. Um, I don't. It's it's so it's so hard to make a prediction about what's going to happen. Um, yeah, it's. I mean, this is an indirect answer. I don't know. I'm, I'm not supposed to be answering questions, but I guess this last question. I'm trying to know what you mean. That I, there are a lot of people in the city, and to answer your question, I would create an art and culture uh, program that anybody can come to, because I really believe art and culture are our strongest tools. And, but there, there's a movement in the city, and when I say city, I mean part of it is, you know, Visit Baltimore and, and other people who are beginning to, and I'm afraid I'm going to use this word, brand Baltimore as an art and cultural city. But in order for that to work, they obviously have to engage artists. Um, and if they, if artists become the thing that people come to Baltimore to see, they have to take care of artists. They have to make sure that they have safe places to live and safe places to do their work, and maybe even healthcare. Um, and that's around the way, but often that's the way things happen. 
uh, that that when you when artists become more valuable to Baltimore, they'll they'll look to their well-being. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So I, you know, we're actually out of time. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for helping me to to say thank you to the panel. And thank you to Furman and for for organizing this and for Tracy for for organizing. So thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.